The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com slash events where you can get your tickets. It's Wednesday, November the 21st, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. With me in studio today are Pat Leahy and Harry McGee, just as usual, you might say. But much more importantly, I am delighted to welcome the newest member of the Irish Times team, political reporter Jennifer Bray. Hello. Hi, you're very welcome, Jennifer. You have a story on the front of today's newspaper um, that the timetable promised by Simon Harris and the government for the enactment of abortion legislation is not going to be met. Yeah, look, it was always going to be a big ask to get this legislation through the Oireachtas by um, the Christmas recess because if you actually look at the arithmetic of what's planned and what's on the schedule, um, that would take up a large chunk of it. So, for example, next week we're going to have to uh, debate the social welfare bill. That's down for around two hours, I think, and traditionally it would take much, much longer than that. So what was originally planned was that the uh, uh, termination of pregnancy bill would be discussed next Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday and that it would take up actually all of the time in the doll, and therefore that would enable it to go into the Shannad, hopefully the next week or the week after, the very latest. Um, But what's happened now is because obviously we have the social welfare bill and various other things going on, is that there's only a certain amount of numbers scheduled on the Wednesday and on the Thursday. And I think it's only around two and a half hours on the Thursday. So basically it's impossible to get that bill through the... um, through the doll next week. Um, what happened in committee stage basically was that there was 25 hours of debate. That will be replicated at least 25 hours in the doll, taking what happened in the, and obviously the fact that we'll have all the TDs um, taking part in the debate. So if you actually just do the maths, if the doll is going to rise somewhere around the 18th or 19th of December, they want to get it through the Shannon, it could possibly be delayed there as well. It might not even get onto the business of the Shannon in time it's looking near impossible to get it through as things stand. Now, having said that, what they could do is they could hold late night sittings, they could sit on Fridays or they could sit beyond the recess. All of those things are possible. Are they did it before chan- with the banking any, any chance of them doing that? I think they'll have to. I think uh, if they want to get this this thing through, they'll have to. The, the flip side of it is um, behind the scenes, the doctors and the GPs associations are actually saying we're not ready for this in January. We don't have the ultrasounds in place. We don't have the aftercare training. Um, we don't have all of the structures that we need and we don't have the guidelines ready. So I think they would actually be quite happy if it was somewhat delayed. The only people I think who'd be unhappy in the long run is probably the Minister Simon Harris because it was it's a political thing. When you set a date and you say, I'm going to bring this in by January the 1st, I'm going to be the minister who does this. It can be viewed as somewhat of a black mark on your on your own card. But if you have all of these other professionals saying, well, don't rush it, don't worry, the referendum has been passed. Let's get the bill right. Let's get it, you know, the way it's supposed to be rather than getting everything in for political Does that feed at all into a bit of a narrative about Simon Harris from, from his critics over the last few weeks, which is that he's more conscious of his public image than actually doing his job properly and that he overpromised in this case? 
In fairness to him, I think much of this is beyond uh, Simon Harris's control. It's got to do with the length of time that the debates took in the committee stage where there was an awful lot of amendments uh, submitted, not just by um, anti-abortion TDs, but also by pro-choice TDs. So the legislative sausage-making is a time-consuming business and TDs and, and senators, when it comes to that, have the right to, you know, suggest debate and then vote on possible changes to the legislation. That's predictable, isn't it? That was predictable? It is up to a point. I think where uh, if if there is fault uh, to be laid at Simon Harris's door, it's uh, promising that it would be done in a relatively constrained time when some of the mechanics of that was beyond his control. But the actual delay itself is not really within his uh, uh, within his his power to overcome. Uh, one other point, I suppose, that is worth making uh, about it is that if, as seems likely, it it, it isn't uh, passed before the Christmas recess, then obviously it doesn't come back to the doll until the end of January when uh, when when the the doll and Channel will return after the the Christmas recess. We are potentially into a much more politically uncertain time at this uh, at at that stage because confidence and supply talks are going on the future of the government is to a degree uncertain notwithstanding that nobody i think is going to bring down the government until the future direction of brexit becomes settled that is something that may occur over the coming weeks if for example i mean the agreement has been Made between the EU and the UK, it now the, the 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 next stage is ratification of that. If Mrs May was to be able to get it through Parliament, which didn't look likely last week, looks maybe a little bit more likely this week. We we'll see what happens uh, with it over uh, over the coming weeks. But if that were to be settled, then the Brexit landscape would be transformed, and you would have a certain path uh, to the future. That puts a whole new complexion on the stability of the current government. And if all that happens over Christmas, early January, which it may, then you are looking at a situation where an election, I think, hovers into view here. In which case, in which case the legislation falls. If there's an election happens before the, and the doll is dissolved before the legislation is passed, then it falls. So is that an argument perhaps for the sort of more extreme measures which Jennifer was mentioning, extra sittings and so on? I think in reality that if that was to hove into view, then uh, I think you would have, uh, you, you would possibly have uh, that that sort of you know the late sittings and that maybe an early recall of the doll in uh, in January to pass it. But bear in mind that that requires the agreement of everybody and the definition of there being an election is that there is disagreement between them. So, so it wouldn't be in Fianna Fáil's interest now to go into an election with this legislation not passed because they would have to defend the fact that half of their TDs voted against a referendum being held in the first place. But precisely, half of their TDs were against it in the first place and uh, they may be quite happy to go to the, uh, they may be quite happy to go to the doll and pitch for those 30%, 34% And subvert the will of the people. Who voted against That would be... Yeah. Such a bad move politically. But, but it wouldn't be Fianna Fáil that would call the election. It would have to be the coalition. And I can't see a situation where the coalition would call an election without this legislation. I haven't gone through the doyle. So you don't think that's going to be an issue in the, in well, the, in the I, new I, year? I, like the, the, the pathway which, which, which I, I cannot see 
And I, could, I, well, I, I, I think it's less likely. But. I cannot see an election preceding this legislation going through. And I think Simon Harris's big mistake was because at the time of the referendum, people were saying, you know, there are so many women going over to England every day. We need abortion legislation. We need it quickly. But this isn't a simple piece of legislation. It's a highly technical piece of legislation. You're talking about a 12-week period. You're talking about a grey area coming up to 12 weeks and afterwards. You're talking about dealing not alone with the objections of those who have opposed uh, the referendum in the first place, but also looking at the, the requirements and the needs and the queries and the objections of the medical profession. And Jennifer, an example of how technical this bill was is a, an amendment that Jennifer uh, referred to in this morning's piece where you have one doctor that's uh, certifying uh, that the woman is within the 12-week period and then allowing another doctor uh, to carry out the actual termination. And one of the questions that arose there was, would the second doctor uh, also be required uh, to make sure that this three-day period of reflection uh, was required or could it be done just by the first doctor? It was agreed that it would be done by the first doctor and then the second doctor would be able to, able to carry out the procedure. But to achieve that in a legislative context is very difficult and all of these things take time. And I, I think... Even though people want the legislation and they want it as quickly as possible, I think that the, the most important thing is that they get the legislation right. And if it takes an extra month or an extra six weeks, uh, I, I think it's better than having the legislation now because this legislation will be with us for a long period of time. I know there's going to be a review after three years, but the, the, the changes after three years will be cosmetic, uh, if anything, unless something goes and then you add to that, wrong. Then you add to that, Jennifer's point, the other point, which is that the medical profession isn't ready to uh, to implement at this point, it's a complex you know it's a complex set of guidelines, frameworks, and professional <laughs> directives, and so on and so forth. You can understand from a human point of view why people want it quickly, but I mean sure. the, the legislation has to be right. And I think Simon Harris was quite naive, in fact, in saying that he would have the legisl- legislation ready within a particular time frame. And he, as Minister for Health, of all people, should have known the complexities that were involved with this legislation. Uh, and getting it through uh, all houses of the Oireachtas. He was ambitious, all right. I'm naive maybe, but definitely ambitious. But I think maybe it's it's very hard to know the scale. You can imagine the scale of something like this, but getting into it, and like Pat mentioned, the, the sausage making of the, the legislation, but behind the scenes, all of the various different medical bodies you have to work with, the clinical guidelines, the practical guidelines. I mean, these things, you know, you can, you can set these deadlines, but of course they were going to be missed. It, it's just far too complicated. Um, and absolutely not surprising. Right. Um, Pat, you mentioned Brexit because we can't let a podcast go by these days without mentioning Brexit. Theresa May is in Brussels today. I, I pepper my conversation with references to Brexit, Hugh, as you know. Yes, Theresa May is over to take afternoon tea with Jean-Claude Juncker, uh, President of the European Commission today. I think really a photo op more than anything terribly substantive. There is some last minute negotiating to be done to the political declaration which will accompany the withdrawal treaty. Can I, can I ask you about that? I was hoping um, you would. Um, obviously, we were talking to Simon Coveney out at the Fine Gael Ardesh at the weekend, and he seemed to make be attempting to make great play of the fact that that particular element of the declaration, which is not legally binding, but it's a it's a statement of objectives, shared objectives in in terms of the next process that that we kick into. Should should this this element should the should the withdrawal agreement be be agreed? And he seemed to be suggesting there was a lot of negotiation that could go on there. There's a lot of detail that could be added to what was a fairly sketchy document to begin with and that this might be in some way meaningful in terms of the overall negotiations I and there maybe is the success of this proposal at Westminster. I think what it does is it gives Mrs May something to hang on to, something to bring, uh, something to bring home about the, the future relationship. You know, as, as lots of people will be aware, there's two stages 
to this. There's the withdrawal agreement, which was published last week and which will be agreed by EU leaders on uh, on, on Sunday at the special summit in Brussels. And that's a that's a legally binding treaty, formal treaty between the UK and uh, uh, and the EU. And that's the one the backstop is in. That text is closed. It's not going to be re, uh, reopened. Both the uh, both Mrs May and the EU say, uh, say that the um, the future relationship political declaration is akin to what happened in December of last year when the backstop was first uh, was first agreed in principle by the British. It's as you say a guide to what may be in the future relationship treaty. And there's an awful lot of relation of negotiating will have to be done between now and the conclusion of the future relationship treaty. This political declaration is a signpost to. Uh, to what's in it. And I think that the point that Mrs May will try to make and which I suspect she will be assisted in to the greatest possible degree by uh, by EU, EU leaders both today and on Sunday is that, you know, that future relationship, that can, you know, there's lots for the British to get out of that. There's lots of negotiating. There's nothing agreed in that yet. And the sort of a, of a future relationship, future trading relationship that the UK wants with the EU is up for negotiation in that process. But what it can't do is affect the backstop which is in the withdrawal agreement and will be signed up to whether or not it's ratified the UK Parliament is another matter entirely. But that text is closed and won't be reopened. The difficulty I see looking at British media over the last week or so, I'm looking at these bozos from the European Research Group all over Sky TV, you know, dragging out, you know, Canada Plus Plus and MaxFac and technological solutions and all these kinds of things, which even were they to be viable, are viable in the next phase. They're not in this, they're not in this phase. They're not an alternative to the, to the backstop uh, no, and the withdrawal. No, they're agreement. part of the future relationship. Canada plus, 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 uh, Norway plus, minus, Switzerland turned around upside down with the greater R sign. Trousers on its head. Et cetera. Um, all, all that is part of the future relationship, which will, uh, you know, of, of, for which there will be the declaration agreed as part of this process but is that's not part of the withdrawal treaty which has which is legally binding which is closed and has the backstop in it so anything in the future relationship treaty can only affect the backstop if it is a if it achieves the objective of the backstop which is uh, no 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 hard border so um I have my doubts, to be honest, uh, uh, about the kind of coherence of what's coming out of the Brexiteers and uh, particularly in recent days. I think you're seeing the kind of Brexity movement beginning to uh, to to fracture a bit. I suspect this is precisely what Mrs May had uh, anticipated. And, you know, you can see that in, 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 in several instances, not least the failure to get the 48 signatures to have a... Uh, a motion of confidence in uh, in Mrs May. I mean, last Thursday, in the wake of the publication of the draft treaty, they were talking about, you know, 60, 70, 80 signatures. We're now a week after that, or almost a week after that, and we still haven't had uh, the 48 she's signatures. She's blessed in her enemies. To George Osborne, the, uh, the, the uh, politician-turned-journalist, so to speak, used to say that uh, the first rule of politics was that you had to be able to count, and I'm beginning to have doubts about the, uh, the abilities of the ERG in that regard. And then there's a summit too. Summit on Sunday. Going to spoil your weekend. 
It is, actually. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> um, which everybody at home is delighted about, I can assure you. Um, uh, yes, uh, somebody, to be honest, I expect it'll be a fairly perfunctory affair. Um, it starts at, I think, half nine on Sunday morning. It'll be finished by lunchtime or early afternoon. I think you'll have lots of nice words, plenty of photo ops. All the leaders will be there, of course. Um, Mrs May will probably seek to come away with some words about the uh, uh, future relationship declaration, which, as I said earlier, I think you leaders will be um, uh, inclined to uh, to give her. But yeah, it's it's kind of a it's kind of a rubber stamp operation, but uh, but necessary all the same. We will continue to talk about Brexit inevitably over the uh, the weeks, well, months, and maybe even Possibly maybe even yeah, years ahead until the end of time. There's things in life you just can't control, like the weather, the traffic, or the fact that spilled coffee seems to love white shirts. But it's all good, because there's something you'll always be able to control, your company's finances. SAP Concur integrates all your business's expenses, travel and invoicing in one simple solution, giving you the visibility and control you need to drive your business forward. SAP Concur. It's how the best-run businesses make their expenses run better. Learn more at concur.co.uk slash control. I want to turn to a completely different subject. Jennifer, you weren't on the team yet, so you weren't at the Fine Gael Ardesh, um, last weekend. No. Um, but myself... I temporarily um, unemployed in that one weekend. It was great. I'd say it was good, all right. Yeah. For our sins, myself and Fiak and uh, Pat were out there in, in the beautiful city west um, talking to various members of the party. And the big... The big news event, I suppose, was Leo Varadkar's promise to um, substantially raise the point at which um, earners start paying the, the, the highest rate of tax. Um, what do you think of that? Yeah, this is this is kind of um, totally unsurprising. It's Leo Varadkar's favourite thing to talk about, it seems, since he took over the leadership is tax. And let's not forget that this was the party, you know, that did once want, promise to do away with the USC. So maybe some of it should be taken with a, a pinch of salt. Um, I think the reason why it grabbed so many headlines was because of the figures. You know, you're talking about a, a huge increase. Um, although, if you crunch the figures, it's actually not that much for kind of lower paid workers uh, in a, on a per annum basis. But it is a vote grabbing exercise. Um, and it is his pitch to the electorate, which is that if you vote for Fine Gael and give us a majority uh, and the power to, you know, have control in the Dáil and the Shannad, then we will be the party uh, of tax. Which obviously they're not going to get. No. Well, if you look at the uh, current opinion polls, all the um, pointers would say that they're, it, it probably will come back. Maybe they'd get around an extra eight or ten seats perhaps, but you know they wouldn't be coming back with a whopping majority. But what it does seem to do is it gives it puts Fine Gael on a patch of clear ground where none of the other significant political players are currently in that it's the only party making an offer of this sort to the electorate. Yeah, exactly. And it does. It sets them apart from the like, Fianna Fáil or any other party. Um, you know, it's kind of a little bit odds with their message as well, though, about being a responsible party who will never make the mistakes of the past and uh, who will point across the, the floor of the doll at Fianna Fáil and say, these are the people who ruined the economy, etc., etc. Um, so in a way, it does kind of set them apart from that original message. But they are setting out their stall. They're putting themselves out there. Uh, and it is an election move. There can be no doubt about it. See, I, I, I wonder about this, Harry. There's The question is, where does the money come from? I mean, is this, you know, I think 600 
million a year. It's going to cost over five years to implement this as, as, as proposed by Fine Gael. So 3 billion euro. Is that 3 billion euros less spent on schools and roads and hospitals? Or is it 3 billion euro that's raised elsewhere in a, in a rejig tax system? Well, it's, it's predicated on, on growth in the economy. Uh, Purely on that? Yes, every year. Because the economy has been growing. And I think the, the, the budgetary space in terms of extra expenditure available to the government has been between two and three billion uh, euro. And, will, and it's, it's based on that extra expenditure, or that extra revenue, extra money being available to the government over each of the, the next successive five years. And of course, he caveated his comments by saying, if the money isn't available, we, are, we aren't going to give it. But I mean, it was deeply unsurprising because uh, increasing the, the, the marginal threshold uh, for a tax to fifty thousand euro, is is just appeals right to the heart of the, of the Fine Gael base. This is what the party stands for, and particularly this is what Leo Varadkar stands for. From an economic point of view, this has always been where he's coming from. And as Jennifer pointed out, uh, a lot of those promises are made in haste and repented at at leisure, as we saw in the run up to the twenty sixteen election. Uh, Fine Gael made an election promise to abolish. Universal social charge, which actually, which is a very fair uh, tax because it it brought very unpopular, very unpopular, but it broadens the base, you know, and it's a tax on all income, so people can't use kind of various runes and kind of little loopholes uh, to 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 uh, evade it, and um, it's it's something that is unpopular, but it's something that raises a lot of revenue and that actually. Sp- Spreads, and they, and they spreads, ended up, even though they've cut it a little bit. They, uh, they in so much as possible. Up, so certainly not, not about... Yeah, so, it, well, you, you, I mean, you, you people are all very cynical and you seem to think this is all based on making a base, you know, making an appeal to the baser instincts of the electorate. But no, 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 not, I didn't say the baser argue, for example. It's appealing to the base. I'm, I, did, I, I wouldn't be critical but of it. This is where Finnegan is coming from. In terms of Ireland's tax structure, one of the things that's out of whack, perhaps, with many other European countries is the rate at which people middle incomes on relatively low incomes start to pay the upper level of tax compared to across the water in the UK, for in, example. In Britain, it's people so start to pay... 50,000 euro. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And so it's 34,000 euro here. And actually, I think the Taoiseach made a fair point that it's 34,000 euro at the moment. And if no adjustment were to be made, you'll find that, that inflation, cost of living, uh, people getting increments to uh, accommodate those changes will mean that a lot of people who are on kind of lower incomes will suddenly find themselves being pushed into the higher tax rate, even though they won't consider themselves to be in any sense uh, middle income earners. So um, in, in a way, this move seems like, seems like a, a big move that's going to cost the Exchequer a lot of money. Uh, there is a rationale behind it because uh, uh, if you don't make changes, uh, people who shouldn't really be caught in the, in the higher marginal rate of tax uh, will be otherwise caught. Have we completely given up on the notion which was floating around in the wake of the crash pass when the IMF came in and said that our tax system was not fit for purpose in some ways or the ways in which we raised revenue of actually restructuring the tax system? Like there has been some talk in the last couple of days about the necessity of introducing carbon taxes, for example. So if you shifted from taxing income, which a lot of people think is not the best way to raise tax, to, to tax other things like particularly at the moment, things that impact on climate change. Yeah, also, probably I, I remember, deeply politically unpopular as well. I, I remember when the uh, USC was introduced during one of the late Brian Lenahan's most hair-shirty of hair-shirt budgets. It was, uh, uh, it was introduced as a temporary measure that would actually be a, uh, a, a reforming 
measure, which would over time would be integrated with the uh, with the PRSI system. And uh, Brian Lenahan famously went into parliamentary party meeting uh, with um, with Fianna Fáil TDs to explain this to them. And such were Lenahan's persuasive powers that he managed to persuade a number of TDs present that actually they could go out and sell this on the doors as something that would make people better off. Um, but that was supposed to be a temporary measure as well. Of course, income tax itself, when introduced to fund the Napoleonic Wars, was uh, was also supposed to be a temporary measure. And that, I'm afraid, is still uh, with us. It's a podcast, yeah. the history podcast. <laughs> so uh, so I'm, I'm sceptical about, um, not cynical, Hugh, sceptical about claims that the tax system is uh, is going to be reformed. There will be carbon. Well, taxes. there have been reforms. I mean, the, the base has been broadened since 2009. It is. And USC and, 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 But has been narrowed, has been narrowed again afterwards. So more people have been taken out of the tax. Sure, sure. Michael Noonan used to say at, uh, at, 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 at one point that, you know, everybody should pay a bit of tax. Even if their income was so low that they only had to pay a euro a week, everybody should... But that's uh, the norm in most other countries, but, but they took but, the people at the very lowest end of yeah. the scale out of, out of yeah, the Because US we that. have a, a, a deeply unequal income uh, uh, income distribution. Indeed, it is my hobby horse, is the, is the inequality before tax. As, before as tax, a, yes. Now, but after tax, transfer. we have a system that is uh, a lot more equal by, uh, by European standards. But... Um, uh, but anyway, we don't get to get start, uh, started on any of your hobby horses. Oh, please do. Uh, well, I mean, yes. Morning. The yeah, point yeah. about the point about financing this tax cut, right? And and I will come on to the political implications of it uh, in a minute. Is it is uh, Harry's entirely right that and and for my sins, I went through the budgetary arithmetic on this last night and discovered lots of things hidden in the footnotes. Footnote eleven on the chart number eight and page seventeen of the budgetary uh, documents. If anybody is uh, is looking for it, so there's six hundred odd now million an accountant in for tax uh, in in in. in in, uh, in for tax cuts every year from uh, from 2020 on, but 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 only 600 million. So what Leo Varadkar is essentially saying is that this is going to cost 600 million a year. That's the only tax cut that is in the books. If he wants to cut taxes anymore, if he wants to continue to reduce USC, uh, for uh, for instance, he will have to well, raise taxes. I mean, having, having having made the point that that we're out of whack in terms of how much we tax people on middle incomes, we're also uh, we're arguably out of whack, or we will be once we do all this, because we won't be raising as much tax. I mean, by tax, I mean all forms of tax, value-added tax, tax on assets. Our corporation tax is incredibly low. You can't just keep cutting taxes, can you? I mean, we, we, had, a, we, had, a podcast well, with, we had a podcast with Pascal Donoghue a few months ago where he certainly set out his stall as being fiscally responsible. That doesn't sound very fiscally responsible. You, 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 you still have a huge debt. A, I mean, it's kind of a, it's a complicated uh, equation because it can act as a stimulus as well. So if people have more disposable income, they spend it and the money can be clawed back or some of it can be clawed but, back. Uh, with all due respect, the scientific response to that, Harry, is that that's bullshit. That's, <laughs> that's, that's, what, that's what American politics, that's what American, the American Republican Party is based, based its policy on for the, for the last three decades. And what they did, the tax cut, which they did just last year under Donald Trump and, uh, and, and, and Paul Ryan. And it doesn't actually work. Well, Trick, it that's trickle-down econo- economics. It works in some limited circumstances. So, if, you know, you well, go back to the famous... Plenty of examples of it not working. Yeah, there are indeed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which means that the bold statement, it doesn't work or yeah. it's bullshit, uh, is no, equally no, as incorrect as the one that says it I'm talking specifically of the, the argument about tax cuts is they're all, they're all, in, the last, in the last 10 or 15 yeah, but years. But they're all provided for in a growth scenario. And in a growth scenario, yeah, the, look, the overall... Well, quantum there, of there taxes is, coming there is in another aspect to it, though. If you, I totally agree with what you're saying. If you actually think about it logically, 
especially at a time when the government is absolutely shying away from increasing property tax. So there is a tax that technically should, people should be paying more. The valuation of people's houses have improved and it's been frozen time and time again. And the reason why the government's shying away from it is because it's political, politically awful. Um, And there's something that should be rising in tandem, you know, and it's not. And we're not even going to go anywhere near it. It's every time it comes up, it's put on the back burner. Because this is more about politics than yes. economics, just as uh, as Jennifer says about the uh, about the property tax. So, you know, how will this work politically for Mr. Verreiker? Tax cuts tend not to be unpopular, but they're not always popular. So, as we said, as Harry said earlier, Fine Gael promised to abolish the USC, or as people used to call it then, the hated USC, the most unpopular tax ever. Fine Gael uh, promised to abolish it in the last uh, uh, in the last general election, yet they lost what twenty seats. So why? Why did that happen? Because they didn't defend it, make it credible. They didn't convince people that they, in a credible manner that they would do it. And they didn't have uh, a narrative around it that chimed with the voters. So simply announcing a big tax cut is never enough to win you an election or to gain you political advantage. That has, it has to go in tandem with an effort to convince people that it is doable, that it's believable, that it's credible and that it will make a difference in their lives. That's where it works. And anybody who looks at the potential landscape post the next election, um, Fine Gael are going to be seeking to lead a majority government uh, in coalition with certain other parties. Those parties are going to involve some mix of... Labour, the Social Democrats, a bit of Greens, a few independents, whatever you're you're having yourself. They're not going to watch this, are they? None of them. No, I think... They're not going to sign up for that. This, this is a negotiating position. Well, on the, I suppose on another side of this, Harry, you were down wandering around various constituencies of Ireland last week just looking at how this... Strategically chosen. Laser-like kind of targeting of certain <laughs> constituencies rather than a wander around... <laughs> An a- aimless wander. I don't know. It, it had a certain pleasant, pleasing, meandering quality that I, I, I thought when I read it. When I read probably, it yeah. Well, so you found yourself in Tipperary. It goes along with my train of thought usually, yeah. Um, went to Tipperary um, and then also looked, went visited two Dublin constituencies, one on the north side and one on the south side, and also looked at, at uh, Roscommon Galway. And these are different types of constituencies, but some, somewhere they hope to win a seat, somewhere they hope to retain one. Defend a seat, yeah. Mm. So it's, I mean, the name of the game in politics is to, to gain your, gain seats, but also you have to defend seats, especially in multi-seat constituencies where where the, the last seat uh, can often be decided on by, by literally a, a handful of votes. So Tipperary, uh, Fine Gael lost, uh, they had two seats in both Tipperary constituencies before the 2016. So election. there used to be two three-seaters, it's now a five-seater. Five-seater, and then they ended up with zero. So uh, they ha- they, it's one of the only two constituencies in the country where they don't have a TD, the other one being Roscommon, uh, Galway. I think there are um, proxy difficulties there. In both constituencies, there's a proxy Fine Gael TD in situ, Michael Lowry in Tipperary and Dennis Nocton in Roscommon. Uh, Galway. And I think the merging of the two constituencies did Fine Gael no favours. They uh, had very, they conducted a very bad uh, campaign in 2016. Uh, there wasn't a proper transfer strategy. They ran a third candidate, which was probably a mistake in retrospect. Uh, but the upshot was that they lost out to Alan Kelly. And uh, ironically, Alan Kelly um, uh, benefited from transfers from Noel Coonan, who was uh, the second Fine Gael TD. He was situated in the north, as was Alan Kelly. So the geography of Tipperary, I mean, not, yeah, not, yeah. not, not, not always important, yeah, but no, particularly I mean, important. Coonan transferred more to Tom Hayes, but he still gave a fair sway the votes to Alan Kelly, and it allowed Alan Kelly to maintain 
uh, the distance between himself and Tom Hayes and ultimately get him uh, elected. So Tipperary is a huge target uh, for uh, Fine Gael. So they set about it in the kind of the modern Leo way. Instead of having a regular convention, they held hustings meetings uh, all over the county. And the person who uh, emerged from that was a young guy, an unelected guy called Gareth Ahern. But he's a son of the late Theresa Hearn, who was a, a TD there for, for many uh, years. And then they added a second uh, candidate, uh, Mary uh, Newman uh, Julian, who is a vet. She was for, she form, formerly worked with a US multinational and uh, she is the sister of Kate O'Connell, uh, the Fine Gael TD in uh, Dublin Bay South. And she's very like Kate O'Connell. She looks a little like her and she's the same kind of very uh, practical, straight-talking... Uh, retiring manner. Yes, um, you said that, Pat, uh, not I. Um, impressive. Uh, and he's impressive as well in a very different kind of way. So neither of them are elected. Both of them have given up uh, any uh, employment they had and are campaigning full-time throughout Tipperary until uh, such a time as an election is held. So I, I think that strategy would probably work for them. I think they'll get one seat there uh, and the name of the game for each of them will be whoever stays ahead of the other. They probably could be within 500 votes uh, of uh, one another at the heel okay. of of the hunt. So that's that. that I mean that, yeah, that so, that's so a very new, new new strategy there. I mean, you looked at say Dublin Northwest, which is a very very different constituency from that, yeah. where they're looking to hold a seat, hold a seat in, yeah. in the face of adversity. Yeah, and Noel Rock so. was elected in 2016, and he was the first TD there for Fine Gael in 24 years. So it's not traditional Fine Gael territory. It's always been a very uh, Sinn Fein have always had a presence there. There's always been a left wing TD, and then Fianna Fáil always had a very strong presence there. Jim Tunney many years ago. In latter years, Pat Carey uh, was a flag bearer for Fianna Fáil there for, for, for many years. Uh, very strong presence, especially around the, the Finglas area. Um, but Fianna Fáil lost out the last time. So Noel Rock will essentially be defending his seat from Paul McAuliffe, who is a uh, prominent uh, Fianna Fáil councillor uh, who ran him very closely uh, uh, the last time. And um, essentially what Fine Gael needs to do there is it needs to be really local. And if you look at Rock and what he's doing, he's, uh, he is out in the constituency two or three times every week, knocking on every door, wearing down the shoe leather. I think the disposition that he has is interesting as well. Uh, the Fine Gael TD in Dublin Northwest tended to be on the left of the party, centrist and to the left of the party. So Rock would see himself very much as a centrist. And he was saying that a lot of his um, fellow TDs would regard him as a, a lefty. And the other thing, the other things that he said was that the recovery message in 2016 went down like a lead balloon there. It was just terrible. And he also said that a lot of people who lived in that constituency, there's kind of middle class, Glasnevin, uh, parts of um, uh, Ballymon and uh, Finglas, uh, a lot of people there in that kind of cohort opposed the abolition of, of USC. And he said that wasn't a very popular message, strangely enough, uh, for, mm. for, for Fine Gael in 2016. And then when you look at Dublin, uh, south of the river, if you look at Dublin Rathdown, uh, and I spoke to Neil Richmond, who is essentially, he's a rising star in the party. He's become an authority on Brexit. He has a very high profile, high profile suits. He's, going, he's, south going, of the river. he's going after Shane Ross. He's going after Shane, or Catherine Martin, whichever seat, but... Um, and um, has been very... I think folk. I can say this because I think Fiac has referred to it before as the Protestant vote. The Taney vote, Taney as vote. they call it, yes. <laughs> yeah, there is a Taney vote there. Uh, Neil Richmond, I think, is Church of Ireland and I think he will be competing with Shane Ross uh, for that particular uh, vote. But he'll also be looking after kind of, uh, you know, middle-class votes and maybe Catherine Martin, 
picked up. There might be an incipient threat from Fianna Fáil if they ever choose a candidate and a candidate that would be successful. They're trying to run Justin McAleese out there. Yeah, there's been, a, there's been an internal debate as to whether he'd be the best fit or not. You know, he hasn't certainly been as present in the constituency. He hasn't as really taken has. off top local sources, tell me. Yes, that's very true. So um, Fianna Fáil, if they're going to mount a, uh, a biddable uh, uh, campaign, they will need to find a biddable candidate and they, the jury's out really on Justin McAleese at the moment. But Richmond looks like he could take a seat. So you could get a scenario where you have two Fine, Fine Gael and either Shane Ross or Catherine Martin or two Fine, Fine Gael and um, a Fianna Fáil. I mean, in every case, they'll be fighting either for a last seat or to retain a last seat or to gain a seat back. Which so it's all going to be in the kind of the, the two or three percent is going to make all the difference one way or the other at the national level. But with, in all of those local elements are extremely, extremely... National polls are, are, are very good at predicting kind of the overall state of the party, but they're not very good predict, at predicting those margins, that those tiny margins that happened when people are fighting for the last season. Well, you look at that organisation, the Fine Gael organisation there. Are you impressed by what you see? Do you think they're in fighting shape? I, I think they are. Uh, I think Leo Varadkar has given the party a, uh, a Philip. There's no doubt uh, about that. I think he's approaching things in a slightly different way. I think, uh, if I looked at it a year ago, I think that, that Fianna Fáil could have made 15 or 16 gains just by, by picking up uh, old votes that, that had, had gone from the party. And Dublin was ripe for gains for Fianna Fáil in particular. And they're still going to make gains in Dublin. They'll gain in Dunlira, I think. They have a good chance of winning a seat in Dublin South West. They have a good chance in Dublin Central as well. And uh, Dublin North West, where well, Paul McAuliffe and Noel Rock will be fighting it out. So Fianna Fáil, about a year ago, had more potential to make gains. But I think what, what, what Leo Varadkar has done, he has injected a bit of energy, a bit of direction, a bit more strategy and focus to Fine Gael and what Fine Gael is about. And I think that's been translated into constituencies uh, at, at, at the moment. But again, I, I think the, the potential for Fine Gael to make gains is not huge. You know, there, there are, there's a limited... They, they did well in Dublin in 2016. There's a limited scope for the party making huge gains in, in Dublin. And in some of the other constituencies, there are already Fine Gael proxies uh, who are independents that they're going to have to budge out. And there's also a threat from Fianna Fáil. But I think that, that they will make gains. I, I can't see them making 20 seats, but I could see them making, you know, anything between maybe five and ten on a good day for them. One last thought before we go, Pat. Um, this report, the Brophy report on the, uh, the fallout from Dennis Nocton's resignation and the process for um, rolling out um, broadband to more remote rural areas around the, around the country. The report has come in, everything's fine, it's all good, except it still looks like a bit of a potential disaster. Report. Yeah. Um, so what we learned today, now the report hasn't been published, but what people um, with some knowledge of it tell me is that, and which we report in the paper this morning, is that they report into the process of the uh, of the tendering um, uh, of the tendering procedures, and particularly with references to the series of meetings that the then Minister Dennis Nocton had with the sole the leader of the sole remaining bidder, uh, David McCourt, that that has not fatally damaged the process. It hasn't meant that the process has to be stopped or abandoned uh, or whatever. And that was belief in government uh, at the time when the meetings took place that this could well be the thing that stopped the the national broadband process. Now, I'm told that that is not the case, that the uh, whatever the details of Mr. Smith's report uh, are the conclusions of it are not that this process is now fatally uh, fatally undermined, but it still faces a number of very significant challenges. 
Uh, amongst uh, amongst those are the rising costs of the uh, of, of of the project, which was originally slated to cost something in the region, cost exchequer, something in the region of 500 million euros. Now there are fears in government that the cost could escalate to as much as 3 billion over time. And that obviously is of a different order uh, entirely. I know many people in the industry are quite sceptical about that co- those those sort of numbers, but they are what has been thrown around government during discussions on the future of this, uh, of this process. The other uh, big question mark surrounding it is the take-up Mm. Of the um, uh, of the service once it has provided. So, what the national broadband plan is planning to do is to connect up the the most remote half a million homes and premises in Ireland. Those that it is commercially unviable. That the companies that do this sort of thing have decided is com- are, are commercially unviable to connect. The difficulty is that. Or the problem, as people in uh, in and around government see it, is that the take up of say, if you take air, is 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 the next most remote three hundred thousand homes and premises are being uh, are being connected. Our air is committed to providing services to those. It's done about two hundred thousand of them uh, at the moment, or offered it to and about. The take up has been very disappointing. About fourteen percent. We were we were mm. reporting last last year. So the fear in government is that they're going to enter into this. Uh, process. They're going to undertake this huge financial commitment to build this network that not most people don't want. Many people well, certainly aren't interested uh, in signing up. up. So the hurdle that the process has got over today is that, or will get over, we believe, when the, the report is published, is that it will continue. Evaluation of the bid is concluding in the Department of Communications. Once that takes place, the government will have to make a decision on it. No decision has as yet been made. No decision to proceed with that McCourt bid has yet been taken. But what has happened or what will happen is that it hasn't been stopped at this point. Because the reality is, Jennifer, isn't it, that whatever the sort of the, the realities, it's kind of as Pat laid them out there, that this may cost a huge amount of money and perhaps have quite a low take-up, it's politically impossible just to resile from it at this point and to say we're not going to do it. Absolutely. If you back away from it, you are open to political fire. If you go ahead with it and lose a lot of money, you're in a bad place too. And I think that while the government may look at this report and say, well, this is way better than we thought it would be, let's fire ahead. Fianna Fáil have still said that they think the whole thing is hopelessly compromised. So how do they align that position with allowing this to go forward themselves? And I dare I mention the words confidence and supply, but I've been talking to a couple of the um, TDs involved in the negotiations and they're just, they were just dying to get their hands on this report because they smell blood and they want to use this as a you know, a bargaining chip where they want to use this actually as something to beat the government over the head with. Now, even if it comes back, like Pat says, it's going to come back and it's going to say it's not fatally damaged. What side are those TDs from, would you say, Jennifer? Oh, I couldn't possibly reveal my sources. (laughs) You know, um, no, I don't want to be fired on my uh, second day. Um, Yeah, I think they're, they're going to use it as something to beat the government over the head with. And Timmy Dooley has repeatedly said it's hopelessly compromised regardless of what the review says. So watch that space. Okay, well, one last thought on that, Harry. Might it not suit both sides then to say we really need to go back to the drawing board here? Oh, they've been going back to the drawing board for as long as I've been writing about politics. I I remember the metropolitan area networks. What happened to them? Actually, the company that's in the final thing was was the company that was managing those. And they they, they were the the, the great uh, silver bullet uh, when Dermot O'Hearn was minister and they just materialised into, into something that was very minor in the end. I, I think they, they, the big salient takeaway fact of the last couple of weeks was the report that Pat had 
about the take up of broadband. People are demanding broadband, but it's only some people who are demanding some broadband. Mm. And then when you actually get to the take up, you have a huge capital cost, but a very small uh, uh, take up, which is like, you know, 10, 15, 20 percent, which is tiny. Now, I mean, two things must be said of that. Like, over time, it'll, over time, yeah. it will increase. But also, if you think of the sort of premises in remote areas that this would be connecting to. Some of them may be holiday homes, some of them may be, uh, you know, just abandoned houses, some of them, you know, will be occupied by, somebody put it to me, you know, two elderly bachelors living up the end of a boring in Balanskelligs, you know, who... Sure, they'll need Tinder more than anybody, Pat. (laughs) Very good uh, 4G network down there. They're fine. They're sorted, Hugh. Don't worry about it. We will leave it at that. Listen, it's great to have Jennifer in to join the team. So thank you again for that. Thanks to Harry. Thanks to Pat for joining us. Thanks to Jennifer Ryan, our producer and our engineer, JJ Vernon. Remember that you can subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast or you can find us on irishtimes.com slash podcast and you can get me at hlinahan at irishtimes.com or you can usually find me lurking around somewhere on Twitter. But until the next time, thanks very much for listening. 